there's a point when you're growing a service-based business, the more you make, the more resources it takes to fulfill. So your margins actually become smaller, the bigger you get, unless you scale. And so scaling is leveraging. And if you can't figure out how to leverage your resources, then more means more. And that creates diminishing returns. At some point, if I would have kept going that in that trajectory, it would have went bankrupt. But I saved the company from going bankrupt by just closing the doors and restarting the business. Welcome to the More Clients, Less Effort podcast, where we provide expert insights and strategies to turbocharge your business growth. I'm your host, Tim Hyde. And in this series, we'll unpack the secrets, proven systems, and the sales and marketing strategies used by successful business owners to attract, convert, and keep A-class clients on autopilot. Whether you're a seasoned entrepreneur looking to scale your customer acquisition or a budding startup owner looking to crack the code on attracting the right clients, you've come to the right place. Join us on this journey to building a thriving business that leaves a lasting impact. Now let's get started. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of More Clients, Less Effort. Today, I'm joined by the amazing Michael Bozinski, uh, who's a dedicated US Air Force veteran, lifelong entrepreneur, digital marketer, thought leader, and best-selling author, and just generally a pretty good guy. Uh, Michael's built several small businesses, two multi-million dollar enterprises, and marketed over 1,200 companies in his career. He's a marketing visionary. Oh my God, you've been dubbed the marketing visionary by the American Marketing Association. And Michael's on a mission to eradicate entrepreneurial poverty. We're going to get into that in more detail uh, in the US by simplifying digital marketing strategy process with a rule of 26. Keen to learn more about that too, Michael. Your revenue piece, revenue approach to business, helps business owners avoid time drain and frustration by managing profitable digital marketing campaigns. Michael, thanks for joining the show. Well, thank you very much for that wonderful introduction. I think we're done now here, right? <laughs> That's it. That's it. That's it. Thanks very much for coming. And uh, next week, we've got another guest. <laughs> Mate, okay, look, a couple of, couple of cool things that came out of that that I absolutely love. I mean, obviously, you know, you've had a, a storied career. It's a good word, isn't it? Storied. Uh, you've had a storied career in marketing and in the Air Force as well. A couple of things there I, I love. I want to pull these out and talk about these in a bit more detail. Then we'll, we'll jump back to how you got started, but talk to me about entrepreneurial poverty. What do you mean by entrepreneurial poverty? So entrepreneurial poverty, in my definition of it, is working for a company or owning a company that can't pay you what you're worth. So I realized entrepreneurial poverty when I had basically grown a multi-million dollar creative agency broke. When I say grow a company broke, I mean that you have created more, what you just keep creating more, right? And so you have more money, but with that money becomes more bills and begets even debt and stuff like that to a point where you can't pay yourself a reasonable wage as the CEO or the owner. For someone okay. who's doing that role, right? So yeah. you would expect for that role. Exactly. So I was, uh, we did over, I was doing at one point, there was like a two point three or yeah, I was like, $2.3 million year, I was not even paying myself close to six figures yet. Yeah. Not good. for. Well, we were talking about this off air, how, you know, I guess with growth comes additional cost, right? Now, it doesn't matter whether yeah. it's in your business or in your lifestyle, all right? If you have a bigger right. house, 
it takes longer to clean and you have a bigger yard. It takes longer to look after that. And you have more stuff to look yeah. after and maintain. And, you know, there's, there's definitely a right size business. I really, I really love this idea of entrepreneurial poverty. I heard a statistic in Australia, I'm sure a similar sort of number is true in the US as well, that most business owners in Australia do pay themselves less than the average like wage for an employee in yeah. the country, right? In Australia, I heard it was like 55 grand or something. I'm sure in the US, it's probably sort of a, a comparative number, maybe 35, 40 if ex with exchange rates. But when you're a business owner, you've got all the controls and freedoms in the world and you are paying yourself less than you could work, earn working at McDonald's. <laughs> like, Close you've really got to look in the mirror and say, look, my what first, am I doing? My first year in business, I would agree with that 100%. <laughs> I paid, I, I think we did $72,000 my first year in business in 2005. And I kept 22,000. I lived off of 22,000 of it. Yeah. <laughs> what am I doing? But wrong? the crazy thing is, if you link, if you think about the, the percentages there, right. And you scale that to 2.3 million. And I was, I think my salary was $65,000 that year. It doesn't scale the same way. That did not scale. It grew me broke. Because at sixty five thousand dollars, and and I own all of the, I have this debt, business debt, and all these other things. I mean, I didn't have freedom. There was no entrepreneurial freedom. There was no financial freedom. There's nothing. I was locked down. I owned a job, and I hated my job. I had a thirteen thousand square foot facility, and the bill on that a building alone. You want to talk about more equals more thirteen fourteen thousand dollars to open the doors per month. That's before I put a single person in it, just having the building and then the maintenance and then, you know, all that stuff, all, all added in. We did the math It's 14 grand to have the building there. Now we had 22 employees. We needed a building. And at that point it was better to own than it was the lease. Right. But owning the building sucked and I hated it. Yeah. So in the end of 2018, I shut it down. Is this your I first company? Is this your first I, company out of the Air Force? No, it wasn't my first company, but it was my first, it was my second multi-million dollar company, but it was the first multi-million dollar company that I founded myself. Yeah. So I, that was a 13 year run. It took me 11 years to get to a million in re, any revenue, but only two years later did we, we hit 2 million. And then we were, we, we had multi, we had double figure year over year growth for seven years straight. Majority of those were north of 25% increase year over year. But when we hit a million, it went, it was like this hockey stick to the 2 million. But then once we hit that 2 million, those last few years there, it only got to about just shy 2.4 million, I think is our best year. And it was because we didn't have the resources that we had when we had less money coming in because we, we were, we grew, you, you're, there's a point when you're growing a service-based business, everybody knows this or should know this, the more you make, the more resources it takes to make, to, to fulfill, right? So your margins actually become smaller, the bigger you get unless you scale. And so scaling is leveraging. And if you have, if you can't figure out how to leverage your resources, then more means more. And that creates diminishing returns at some point. If I would have kept going that in that trajectory, it would have went bankrupt. But I saved the company from going bankrupt by just closing the doors and restarting the business. 
It's interesting when you say that we talk about growth and scale. I think a lot of people are kind of interested in growth, but yeah. growth is linear. It doesn't necessarily mean more profitability, does it? Right? No. What we really it doesn't. It usually goes this way: that the grow the the revenue goes upwards yeah, and the the uh, profitability starts to scale off <laughs> and trail <laughs> off. That's right. you know, the and that's increase. but if you think <clears> about it, think about the, the at the enterprise level. Okay, Microsoft sells a software for $99 for an entire year. Okay, the actual profit on that one license is minuscule when you take into account the entire company that it takes to put that software online for you to have at a click of a button. But what they're scaling is the amount of people who can have it at any given time, right? So if you were trying to, to compete with them, the amount of R&D you would have to put in to keep up with them would not, you wouldn't make any profit, right? But that's the difference between a product and a service-based business, right? With services, you have human beings that have to serve or produce whatever is being sold, right? So in marketing, we have to create things, whether it be strategies, implementing tactics, assets, any of managing ad campaigns, all that stuff takes human interaction, right? Now, the trick then is to say, okay, it, once you get to a certain size, can you utilize technology to make your humans more efficient? That efficiency quotient is the scalability quotient. Yeah, you and I are both uh, equally excited about coming out at the moment for that exact reason. And it doesn't replace the need for humans but it does give us that scalability to actually go, I can now continue to yeah. scale without my profits sort of sliding off. So I think now my goal, I've seen as we grow businesses that there's a, you know, if you look at sort of basic ratios to say, you know, there's a cost of acquisition, there's a cost of delivery, there's a cost of business overhead, and there's the profit to the owner. What, what I see a lot of people miss as we scale their business is that we introduce this cost of management of our people and we haven't really accounted for that cost of management as we scale. And that cost of management gets bigger and bigger and bigger and starts squeezing the only thing it can squeeze, which is the margins in your business. And so I'm glad you said that right there, because I literally just this yesterday. So I am at that point where we're going from a team of six to a team of eight. Okay. So we're going to increase 33% of our overhead, technically the overhead, right? But we haven't sold any, we haven't sold 33% more. Now, with that said, I have built up reserves to take on those runways, but the sustainability of that meant that I had to go back to the drawing board and rework and re-engine, re, like basically reverse engineer what it would mean to have this next level of people to be in the mix because they're not adding to the end product but they're adding to the end cost. So we took, so I, I'm a big believer in profit first by Mike Michalowicz. I think you yep. and I've talked about that right there. And so I'm using a lot of what I've learned there to be able to basically, okay, what percentages should I be looking at? And then, then basically dissecting that and going, okay, how does that work? Then once I have those percentages and I go, okay, what's my average fulfillment cost? I can now take the variable of what my fulfillment percentage is in that whole equation, and then just divide my average per hour fulfillment cost by that percentage, and I have my retail price. 
yeah. all the rest of this stuff falls right into place. That's right. And I think this is where like people that. don't get it right, right? We just pick a retail price and just go, oh, that'll do yeah. well. There's something. Yes. And obviously we've got to temper that with what our customer is actually going to pay, right? Well, that's the job of marketing yeah. to make it seem more appealing. But right. understand- And you, have to, and you do have to do your market research to make sure you are able to do that. Or you can turn around and say, okay, I have to package my things in a way that our delivery can meet- the hourly, right? So it's if you said, okay, 30% for fulfillment, right? But you can't, and you had say $50, right? So 30 of 50, let's, let's just round numbers, that's $150 an hour, right? And your market will only bear say 125. That means you got to figure out how to make $50 an hour go farther so they can do more so that that $25 gap can still make your margins because you've got to maintain those margins that's where everybody stop that is everybody starts growing broke is by reducing their margins thinking that well i'll be making more money but you're making more money by doing more work right because when you make less percentage on every dollar coming in the door that means more dollars have to come in for you to make more money yeah well, it's, you know, one of the reasons I'm not a huge fan of discounting for the same reason, because immediately you're giving away bottom line, right? You're giving away your margin. Yeah. Right. And, 100%. Uh, you know, it means you need to do you know, exponentially more volume in order to make it worthwhile. This is the problem, though. So many people in the, in the service-based world charge by the hour and not by the value, right? We base our prices by an hourly construct, right? But if you, when you start scaling, you find ways to add value without adding work. And that's where your profitability comes back into play. Mm. Right? Software as a service. Both of us have CRMs. We get it, right? The CRM is something that once you've done the work once, now it's very easy to plug people into that system. That's leverage. And when you're done setting them up and they're off and running, it doesn't take a lot of human intervention to keep that motor running little to none. Like I host websites, we had to get it to scale, you know, before it really was making money because we only could charge so much to manage a website, right? So when there's only 10 websites, it was not very profitable. But once you get into the 100, 200, 300 websites, it becomes extremely profitable because we can spread the cost over all of those people because there's a lot of fixed costs in there, right? And very small variable cost. The cost of your accounting software doesn't really scale that much. The cost of your insurance doesn't really scale that much, right? Yeah. Um, QuickBooks, thankfully, QuickBooks does not charge us by the dollar going through. <laughs> yeah. You know, don't, don't, don't encourage them, mate. <laughs> don't encourage them. That would I suck. Like your payment processes, which take it. Yeah. I wish the payment okay. process would get a fixed cost. <laughs> Talk to me about your journey, you know, from, from getting out of the Air Force into entrepreneurship and how you've come up with this rule of 26. Wow. That's, that's a big leap there because you know, it was 15 years after the military and, and uh, I was actually always an entrepreneur and my entrepreneurialism actually started as a young child on a farm, uh, picking up walnuts for my grandfather and he'd pay me $1.25 a gunny sack for English and black walnuts. Right. And, uh, that taught me early on what it meant to do something and get money for it. Right. 
um, because on the farm you worked a lot, but all you got was room and board <laughs> and some clothes on your back, right? So, um, but in the air, I was a musician, working musician in my teen years up and through my twenties. Um, even while I was in the Air Force, I had a working band and stuff like that. And so we were always, you know, that's a, a band is a marketing firm, an entertainment firm. It's a lot of things, right? All at the same time. So it's a little business that you got to turn around and keep working at, right? So when I got out, I actually started a recording studio when I got out of the Air Force. And then I just realized, you know, that $72,000 was a lot of work. And I realized that starving musicians was just not a profitable uh, poor clientele to go after. There's, uh, you know, there's a reason starving artist is a stereotype. (laughs) (laughs) So I went for the second poorest demographic, which is small and micro businesses. (laughs) because we have no money either, but there was a lot more of them. And I have found ways that I could serve them. And there was needs and and all that good stuff. And I won't bore you with the details of like how we, we, uh, we launched out of that, but it ended up growing into this full spectrum media production house that then my marketing background fed into, and we just started charging for that acumen and then built it into a creative agency. And so when we rebuilt it, and when I tore it all down, I, I split the company into two entities. And so we'd still have this legacy media company that does legacy stuff, uh, legacy like video, audio, stuff like that. But I really focus my my time now on the Buzzworthy. And Buzzworthy is an integrated marketing uh, firm, which means that we take all the channels of marketing and find ways to integrate them into a system that is repeatable, scalable, and profitable, right? So the rule of 26 is really just a way of simplifying the strategy of online marketing or website marketing, if you will, down to three KPIs or key performance indicators. Because you know, you know, you can go to HubSpot and Shopify and even CRMs, hundreds of KPIs everywhere, right? Likes, engagements, uh, you know, shares and all the things, you know, the open rates and click-through rates. And, and I was like, this is where the business owner gets lost, disinterested and scared of online marketing. So I said, okay, well, what if we only had to look at three numbers and every one of these numbers uh, directly affected the bottom line, literally moved revenue needles. So I found those three that then working together, give me a compounded output or a leveraged output. So scalable, right? Mm -hmm. And so I identified that if our unique traffic goes up by 26%, our conversion rate goes up by 26% and our average revenue per client by 26%, we get a compounded output of 100% more revenue coming from our website. Yeah, it's not, it's interesting because I, you know, do similar sort of CMO work to you with some of your clients. And, you know, the first thing that we always lay down is, well, what numbers are we tracking? Right? And we're not looking at that again, we're not looking at vanity metrics. I don't, I don't care how many likes you've gotten, how many followers, like, how many, how many of those followers are actually coming to a shopping cart to potentially buy something, right? You know, what's their average order value? <laughs> how often do they buy? Uh, and depending, right. on, depending on the product or how frequently do they buy? You know, and what are we doing in terms of tactics, either from a systemization perspective or a, a marketing perspective to manipulate those outputs? And if we're doing something that doesn't change that number, why are we still doing it? hundred percent. And it, it, we call them vanity KPIs, right? They're vanity metrics. They make us feel good. They make agencies look good because it gives them something positive to, to show for their work, right? 
And so you're playing off of the vanity of the client, which is a business owner who is really just looking for ROI. And so, you know, for my firm, that's all we care about. We're like, we're focused on ROI. When I do a proposal, I actually go back and say, hey, listen, there's an ad, if we're doing an ad campaign, we're looking at your, not just your return on ad spend, we're looking at your return on investment, which means our management fees have to be put into that equation so that you understand that if you give me a dollar and I, I can give you X dollars back, that's the goal. If we don't hit that goal, we miss the mark. Mm. And that's the partnership that we bring in there. Because if I can tell you, hey, give me a dollar, I'll give you a dollar 25 back every time. How many dollars are you going to give me? It's interesting because I was having this very conversation with a client recently. And we were talking about advertising budget. And I said, what's your advertising budget? And she said, oh, I'd probably have to cap it at $1,000 or $1,500 or something. Surely if we understand what your cost of acquisition is and cost of you would multiply that a thousandfold. No, stop. <laughs> and understand that and, and, and stop right now. But it is really important that we actually break that down and go, well, if I spend a dollar in acquisition, how much does it make me? Exactly. Yeah, we, we ask people like, what's your gross margin? What's your close rate when you do get a client to come? How many does it cost? So, because a lot of people will talk about CPA, which is a cost per action, right? And it's like, that's a big difference than cost per acquisition. <laughs> so many people get that wrong. And it's one of those little, it's a fancy way of hiding the truth from the end consumer, which is the business owner, which is the person who loses when the campaign loses because the marketer gets paid regardless 99% of the time, right? Because there's so many things outside, like a lot of people say, well, Buzz, why don't you do, you know, guarantees? It's like, there's no guarantees in marketing. And if anybody does give you a guarantee, guess what? They're rigging it to their, the house always wins and they're rigging the game to their favor. That is not a good relationship to have with somebody. It's better to just be very honest and say, hey, here's a worst case scenario, which, I mean, we could say worst case scenario is zero. And I've seen that once in 17 years. Right. And it was something that was out of my control, but it was still, I was the marketer at the helm. So, you know, they point the finger at the marketer and they're like, okay, you got to take the bruises. That's fine. Yeah. I got a lot of wins, so I'm okay with it. Right. But I always tell people, like, let's look at the conservative numbers. And if we crush it, you're going to be that much happier. But if you can be happy with my conservative numbers, we're going to have a really good relationship. And for me, it takes the pressure off of you, the consumer, the client, right? If you don't have too big of a uh, expectation, right? And a lot of people talk about, you know, managing expectations. It's the numbers you have to manage. They're seeing in their brain. I talk them down from that and down. Like, no, I, my close rate 60%. I was like, okay, well, let's assume you only have a 20%. One third of what you know you actually do. is, <laughs> right? And it probably is. But even if I tell them, like, if they actually know their numbers, like, yeah, well, you know, we average dot, 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 dot. Like, a lot of contractors know their close rate. Like, uh, we just we started working with a uh, window replacement. Window replacement people know their numbers because it's all numbers, right? And so they're like, hey, yeah, our, our, our close rate is X. And I said, okay, I'm going to cut that in half and show you what these numbers look like. He's like, why would you do that in half? Just in case. What if all of the leads we get were crap? They're half as good as they used to be. 
then that means it's going to affect your close rate, right? He's like, yeah, yeah, okay. So, okay, so we'll take half of your close rate and then we'll pop these in with some conservative numbers on my side. Now, if we put these together, it still shows an ROI. Would you be happy with that ROI? And we looked at the profitability of those because they've got costs of goods sold, the cost of inflammation. I was like, what is your gross profit at the end of the day? Right, $40,000, oh, I make about six grand. Okay, so every deal is worth around $6,000 to you in your pocket because the rest of that money goes to somebody else to get the windows in. So we did all the math there and then he's like, that's the worst case scenario? It's not worst case scenario, zero, but this is a pretty bad scenario. Well, I can handle the bad scenario, so let's go. Done. It becomes very easy to sort of demonstrate. And I think that's, you know, we have a, a responsibility as business owners, right? Providing okay. services to clients to say, well, worst case scenario is this, is that still acceptable for you? And if it is, go ahead. Because if it's not, we're missing a whole bunch of other things, right? And we set the expectation way up here. Like my inbox right now in, you know, both LinkedIn and in fact, particularly in Facebook, is just chock full of people saying, I'm going to book you 45 meetings a day. I'm like, I'm doing the math in my head going, uh, when am I going to sleep? <laughs> yeah, right. Like, I don't need that many. Like, <laughs> really don't and, then I, and then I tell them, and then I go, well, I was like, like I like this. Uh, I had one. He's like, I'll get you 15 appointments a month. I was like, okay, so that means you're going to get me four appointments a month because I just cut it in fourths. <laughs> <laughs> Because yeah. they don't know. Like, well, of course, they, they're going to they right? you know, and, and they're they're give at, you crap. And they're going to close at 60 to 80%. I'm going, oh, crap. <laughs> selling. <laughs> what am I so like? That's your problem because you don't have a good sales system and blah, blah, blah. Here, let me introduce you to my other friend over here who can help you sell and close. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so <laughs> you see this sort of stuff up all the time. And I think, you know, we, we do have, we do have, and certainly if you, you know, you're considering, I think if you're considering working with a marketing agency, um, it's, it's stuff you should ask, you know, what's the worst case scenario. And if you're comfortable with that, then it's probably a good arrangement to have. I remember years ago, you know, I used to work with, you know, spent lots, much of the noughties teaching marketing agencies what digital marketing actually was. And uh, I still remember seeing, you know, the old school print people come in and they'd, they'd lay out your, your magazine spread and say, look how good your ad looks. I'm going, great. How many people turn to that page and actually took action on that particular thing? And <laughs> I don't know. Right. Now, oh, like yeah. great, thing about, great thing about digital marketing is we can actually break down those numbers in a very, very strong way. You know, how many yeah. conversations, how many links, how many clicks, you know, what do people click on? Yeah. What are they going <laughs> to click on? What, I mean, so, so many times, I mean, when we, we talk about leveraging, you know, I talk about when you, what, what you're talking about is like, who is going to react to the message you're putting out there. Right. And when we talk about leveraging marketing, I start with that average revenue per client so that we can identify the most profitable clients for the client, right? Who is your most profitable? Because there are clients right now, because we work with service-based businesses. That's, that's all we do. We don't do retail, e-commerce or anything like that. And um, so when we're doing that, we're like, hey, who's sucking the oxygen out of the room and only paying what the best clients are paying? Because those are sucking the profit out of your bank account right? We call them pitas, pain in the ass. Okay. And we used to do a pita discount and not like a good discount, like a bank discount and charge people a, a premium if we thought they were going to be a pain in the butt, right? And we knew they're going to be a pain in the butt because they were hard to get on board, 
right? So it's, if you're it's, wiggling it's, and squirming to get to, to even do business with, it's like, yeah, oh, yeah. Well, wait till they actually start paying you money, right? Because if they suck a lot of your time getting on board, that means they're reluctant to be successful. And uh, we won't go into the psychology of that. Let that sink in for a second. The people re most reluctant to give you money will be the most reluctant to be successful in your relationship, period and story. So we got to get rid of those people out of here so we can create the bandwidth, the leverage to only focus our marketing on the most profitable type of people you can do business with. I, people I, are so worried about losing business, they're willing to deal with unprofitable clients. And I don't get it. No, I, I completely agree. And I think this is so important when we understand who that avatar is, you know, who that, my, my wife calls it her soulmate client. You know, who's, who's your soulmate it. client? Who's that person that when they call you, you're like, I need to talk to them. Not, oh my God, they're calling you again. Right. Um, and the that, ones you can't people, get off the phone from. Because you're like, are, you actually make it more improbable because you're the one that keeps gabbing about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the you ones you, you know, the ones you'd invite to dinner with your family. You know, mm -hmm. who are those clients? And, you know, they have definitely characteristics, right? They understand what you do. They're fun to work with, right? Yeah. They don't- They trust they, you. They, they trust you. They don't question the value that you bring to the table and the price that you charge for that value. I have a and trick to find those. those. If you don't have those people, they're, they're perfectly suited to somebody else. Exactly. And I, and the thing is, is this, I tell people all the time, it's like those people actually have, there are people out there that are perfect clients for them. Right. And so understanding that there's no such thing as competition, but redistribution of energy. And so if we can all find the best place for clients as they're being energy, if you will, and saying, hey, your energy actually fits better over here with my friend who does business this way. And that's how my friend has decided to do business and it's profitable for him. Then heck yeah, let's get you in the right place. Now my friend wins, the client wins and the client's clients win, right? And so, and my win is not having them on my plate. Sometimes I get paid for it. They're like, yeah, I'll take whatever you don't want to do. Okay, great. I'll pay you for it. Okay, great. Awesome. Now it's a win, 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 right? I'm good with that. But there's a trick I do for people who are like in more in the consulting uh, realm. It's really easy for them. To be, they're always talking to their clients. And I tell them, I said, hey, the next time you're having coffee with one of your clients, the, the, your, your clients that you love to work with, ask them how much it would impact your relationship if you had to charge 26% more for the same services. And just look at their eyes. Don't worry about what they say. Look at their eyes and see how they react physically. If they don't blink, that means they will do it. Because a lot of people are like, oh, yeah, that wouldn't be so bad. But you wouldn't do that to me, would you? Right? <laughs> like, I'm your best client. Come on, man. I thought we were buddies, right? Type of thing. Others are going to go, you know, I was actually wondering when you were going to do that. But if none of them say that, you have a value proposition issue. And then you just have to find ways to create more value and get them to go, oh, well, if it was that way, then yeah, I'd pay that. Great. As long as that added value doesn't make take more work, it's got to be leveraged. Yeah, absolutely. We could guess back about this forever, I reckon. <laughs> talk to me about a system. You've got, you know, we, we do a lot of integrated marketing with clients, but talk about some systems that you use in your business that really give you that leverage, that scalability. So there's a couple of things in acquisition, uh, to be clear, right? So in acquisition, I have found the one-to-many is how, so I've built, I should back up. I built my business 
through networking. Like my first couple million is all networking. Referrals, networking, a little bit of word of mouth. That was it. We didn't, we, we would sponsor things and stuff like that, but where we got our business was from that. And that is not scalable until you decide, oh, I found this thing called the internet, right? Because we weren't always an online marketing uh, firm. So as I grew up, I found that one to many is a much better way to leverage networking. So at first, before the advent of podcasts and stuff like that, it was getting on stages. And then I'd have a process of getting the business cards and then having the salespeople follow up with them and stuff, dot, dot, dot. So I was able to leverage my time by bringing in the leads to my salespeople who then didn't have to go knock on doors. We already have a group of people who want to talk to us as a team, go back and talk to them. They're impressed with what I had to say, keep going, right? Now with podcasts, I can leverage my one-to-many by being on podcasts, sharing knowledge, Every once in a while, I just had it this week where somebody heard me on a podcast. They found me on LinkedIn. They went into my system that then got them uh, an interview with me, a discovery call. Just had that last night. And he's now wants me to be his fractional CMO. I did nothing except talk to a lot of people and never had to hear a no because the no's just never check in. And that's leveraging my time because that one half hour, I talked to hundreds of people that I will never meet except for the one that counted, which is the one who called me. That's right. Actually, one, one of the reasons I, like, I love podcasts is for the same reason, right? We get to share and educate, and we have a lot of fun on these, on things, sharing our knowledge. And oh, yeah. if you're not interested, that's okay. <laughs> if you are, <laughs> get yeah. in touch. They'll find another, they find, I mean, th this is the thing, like how many times do you, I mean, if people obviously are listening here, are they listen to podcasts. And some of the episodes, you're like, I really like that guy. And the other way, you're like, hey, that lady was kind of not, a lot very helpful for me and that's fine not everybody's a good to me a good fit and they can talk about the same exact thing and you could learn different things from them but it's the personality that we tie into as service-based businesses and when we serve people we're dealing with other people and you have to like some element of them in order to work with them right and i think podcasts allow us to do a lot of that you know i'm talking naturally you're talking naturally this is our personality all right so people are getting to know us without them us looking at them and making them nervous thinking that we're going to go sell them something there's nothing to buy here we're just having conversations and if they hear something they're like i want to hear more about that they'll reach out and say hey will you tell me a little more about the rule of 26 or can you tell me a little hi can you tell me a little bit more about your crm whatever that is that's the whole point of this is learn until you need more information. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's, uh, let's finish up because uh, again, we can, we might even have to, we'll, we'll definitely get you back because I reckon this, <laughs> this conversation could go on. We're going to bridge the uh, for, international for a, state gap here <laughs> for a series. We're going to do a series of 10 episodes. I always like to finish off with a bit of a quick fire so people can get more, get to know more about you. Um, obviously you're going to look up Michael on Inst um, LinkedIn, I better say Instagram. Uh, only fans, maybe you're going to find yes, my LinkedIn. on, uh, <laughs> on, uh, on LinkedIn, B U Z I N S K I. So that's where you'll find Michael. We'll put that link for Michael's, uh, inst uh Instagram. I keep thinking Instagram for some reason. <laughs> uh, I was just on Instagram this morning into the show notes as well. Um, I mean, let's it, jump, if let's you want Instagram, I'm at, at you are buzzworthy. You are buzzworthy. Love it. Man. 
let's do this one. Let's uh, let's get to know you a little bit better with a little quick fire to finish things off. Uh, what's your favorite childhood memory? My favorite childhood memory was snowboarding. I loved snowboarding, and we would cut class uh, at lunch and drive. I lived in California and drive an hour and a half to two hours to get to the nearest slope, then get to snowboard about. 45 minutes and then drive back before my curfew. And we did that without ski lifts. So we had to walk up the hills and then <laughs> snowboard down. You get about one or two runs in and then you're good. <laughs> it reminds me of the first time I went skiing as a four-year-old or five-year-old or however old I was. I uh, literally put my skis on um, and the car park was at the top of the slope, not the bottom, which it often is, was at the top of the slope. And put my skis on, went down, up the rope toe, down again, up the rope toe. <laughs> down the road, oh, again, yeah, I love up the road toe again and then back to the car where my mum was trying to sort out my brother and sister and uh i said mummy i like this can we keep doing it and she said sure but now we need to go and get a ticket <laughs> <laughs> love it i love it my first one it was at heavenly we didn't have money for the lift ticket it was tahoe and but we we noticed that there was a shuttle that went from the chalet up to the parking lot and the and at the parking lot there was a little ledge you could walk out and drop in for that last bit of the run so we spent a whole day taking the shuttle from the chalet up to that point walking out to the ledge and going down that last 30 seconds of the hill <laughs> let's do this one what does your family think you do <laughs> well it depends on what part of my family you're talking about i have a big family i think my so my mother is a far is still a, a rancher i don't think she understands what i do at all my dad thinks I, i'm a marketer he actually he, he's got a business mind so he definitely sees it and i've worked with him and tried to help him start his business when he retired and then he really understood what i did and he quit about a year into it <laughs> and your wife what does she think you do my wife knows exactly what I do because I work from home now that we're a hundred percent remote. And so a lot of times she can picks my brain to help me with her work. <laughs> She's like, Oh, you're my marketing guy. Let me, I need you to come over here and help us market this thing for my work. Mm. <laughs> my wife's just taken on a, a business coach, but she definitely is very in tune with the ups and downs of being an entrepreneur. And, um, she might not, understand like the the nuts and bolts of what i do every day but she definitely understands the gist for sure yeah my uh my wife's just taken on a business coach in her business and uh and, and mentor and uh question was because i know her mentor quite well i introduced them and uh, she said what doesn't doesn't tim talk to you about doing this marketing stuff and she's going oh yeah all the time <laughs> sometimes it just needs to come from someone else right exactly <laughs> what's what's the source of your inspiration my current source of inspiration is my failures. Um, I wrote the book, The Rule of 26, to help people avoid my failures. My systems are all built around delivering ROI because of my failures. My entire mission is to impact as many business owners as I possibly can. And I have a great joy my wife it's funny we we're just coming into this uh into this the, the studio that i'm in is in my house and um 
I'm walking up and she's like, oh, you're not done yet. I was like, no, I gotta, I'm gonna go do this interview. Da, da, da. You just love working. It's like, it's not work when you love what you do. I said, the work to me is finding ways to leverage my impact so that when I'm done, I can feel like I did have a little bit, I put a little dent into society at some level. <laughs> and I love it. I love it. Let's finish up there. Where can people find you online? Oh, you can go to uh, buzzworthy.biz. And if you want to check out the book, go to uh, ruleof26.com. That's awesome, Michael. And thank you so much for joining us, sharing with us your incredible expertise and knowledge and uh, a couple of laughs in there as well. Really appreciate you, you taking the time out of your day. Thanks for having me. Guys, thanks again for joining us for another episode of More Clients, Less Effort. Lots of value bombs in that one. Uh, look forward to seeing you on the next episode real soon. Take care. Thank you for joining us on today's episode of More Clients, Less Efforts. Join us next time for another insightful discussion filled with actionable advice and inspiring stories, all geared towards helping you grow and scale your business simply and easily. Remember to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite app so you never miss an episode. See you next time.